Well, after a two-week hiatus from Ecclesiastes, we are back in our book study today. Although I trust that you enjoyed uh, Dr. David Murray last week and uh, his message on depression. I've heard many, many uh, responses to that, and I think a lot of people posting the message and things like that. So praise God for him and for his blessing us with that message. Today, it's back to Ecclesiastes and back to the the old Midwestern accent. So I hope you don't mind. It's as good as I can do. One of the challenges in teaching through Ecclesiastes is that the author often repeats himself, okay? Repeats himself, which a little bit of repetition is uh, fine, but as you move through Ecclesiastes, sometimes you get to sections where it's like he's really pounded that point already, and uh, which works great for the reader. It reinforces if you're reading through Ecclesiastes. Uh, but he didn't really have the verse-by-verse expository preacher in mind. So today what we're going to do is, uh, with chapter 8, which is where we are in our study, we're going to just kind of summarize it. I'm going to do a quick survey of it, and then we're going to focus on chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Which is, by the way, a section about hope. When I get there, it's going to be, sound like it's about death, but it's actually about hope. So bear that in mind, okay? All right, a survey of Ecclesiastes 8. You're welcome to open your Bible there. You can just kind of follow along. I'm just going to quickly work my way through it. Solomon begins here by giving advice for those who are under the rule or reign of a king. In fact, your heading there might do that. My Bible has these bolded headings as you read through it. It probably says something like that. And uh, indeed, that's what he does. So as a king, Solomon is in a unique position to uh, share, this is the kind of thing that curries favor with the king, and this is the kind of thing that might cost you your life. And we have to realize that uh, people back in this day, they didn't live in a democracy. In fact, democracy didn't come along centuries later, birth in Athens, so most of the people who've lived in history have lived under some kind of a, uh, an authority that they had no say in, that they didn't vote for, and yet they are responsible to live under that authority. How do we do that? How should we do that? Solomon here in chapter 8 begins by giving some suggestions, and he advises here that there are blessings that come from honoring the king, verse 3, Because the king does whatever pleases him. Verse 4, the word of the king is supreme. Now there's quite a bit here, but here's the general principle. It's repeated in the New Testament in Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 18. Here's the principle, that all authority is established by God. And we honor God's authority when we honor the delegated authority, the little kings that he establishes over us. That this is just as much an act of worship uh, to, to do as taking the Lord's Supper. Okay, so the way that you submit to your boss, or if you're a student, the principal at the school, or civil authorities, or the head of the PTO, or whatever it is, these little kings that we have in different contexts of our life, that we are under them, We submit to them, we honor them, because we honor the one who gave them the authority in the first place. Okay, so because we see God as king and supreme, it trickles down to an honoring 
of wherever we see his delegated authority over us. So maybe I'll just pause there and ask, how are you doing with that? Got a little king that is over you in some way and you're having a hard time honoring that little king. We do so as an act of worship to God. So honor the king, all the little kings that are over us. Now in verses 10 through 13, he returns to the injustice theme. And if you've been through in the series, you know that he hits injustice over and over again. And he groans here that there are people who did really horrible things in communities and they end up being honored as great people. He says, how can that be? In the very communities that they committed the crimes, they're held up in high regard. This is like us today. How many corrupt politicians are there that have roads and schools named after them? And you think to yourself, how did a guy like that or a woman like that get their name on this park over here when we all know the kind of character that that guy had, yet he's honored with a sign that has his name on it? Doesn't seem right, does it? And yet that's the broken world that we live in. It's injustice. And finally, in verse 14, he ponders again the injustice of life. How the righteous oftentimes, it seems, get what you would think the wicked deserve. And all too often, the wicked get the blessings that you think the righteous deserve. He sees that and he says, that just does not seem right. And he concludes with this despairing note However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. In other words, you take all of the ambitions of mankind and all of the projects and all of the endeavors and all of the books and the studies and the universities and the kingdoms and the wars and the this and the that, you take all of that, all of man's pursuits, and in the end, man doesn't find what he's looking for. He doesn't find in this world that satisfaction that he craves so much and seeks after. The song that mankind keeps singing is U2's, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields. I have run, I have crawled. I have scaled these city walls. I have kissed honey lips, felt the healing in her fingertips. I have spoke with the tongue of angels. I have held the hand of the devil but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That is Ecclesiastes. That is Solomon. That is the plight of mankind. And that is Ecclesiastes 8. Now, just when you think Solomon couldn't be any more depressing, right? Any more despairing. What does he decide now to talk about? Death. There you go. How's that for an encouragement today? You might be saying to yourself, we need to go back and listen to that sermon from last week on depression, because frankly, eight and nine are kind of depressing. All of these injustices, all these things wrong in the world, and then, oh, by the way, you're all going to die. So I said to you earlier, this is going to sound like a message on death, but it really is a message on hope, okay? So with that, let me read our primary text here, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 6. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. 
Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now we've talked about in Ecclesiastes how Solomon describes this human existence as life under the sun. That is code, when he says that, for man's pursuit of ultimate meaning as if there is no God, okay? Life under the sun. And I have a little chart here to help you sort of see what he's doing here. Here's Ecclesiastes, okay? So we all live under the sun, and it's like there's a ceiling here. There's this, this wall. There's nothing more than this world. So if you just looked at this, this is the materialistic world. This is naturalism. This is evolutionary biology. This is atheism. This is, these are the worldviews that... that do not believe there's anything more than what we see, feel, touch in this world. And Solomon calls that life under the sun. But every once in a while, he will insert another worldview, another perspective, which is life under God, and insists that while this is the way that it appears to us, that in reality, all of this is actually life under God, okay? And with that, all of a sudden, into Ecclesiastes springs a little bit of hope, okay? Wait a second, this world is not all that there is. There is something more. There is someone more. There is ultimate. There is infinite. There is eternity. So God, then, is the end and the satisfaction of man's search for meaning. Apart from him, life is absurd. Life is futile. It's like chasing the wind, with him, life matters, and eternity matters. And I, I, I do this because in these six verses, he's a little schizo, okay? He's a little bit life under the sun, and he's a little bit life under God, and he swings sort of between these two in this one section. So let's get into it now. What is, this, what is, what is he saying here? And the first thing that Solomon says is that what appears to us to be random and chaotic is actually... Life under God, that it is controlled by God, this random life. Again, verse 1, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. You ever hear people say this? You know, something terrible happens and they'll be like, well, we know everything happens for a reason. Or we're really, we're really trying to find the purpose in this. Little phrases like that. You know, after the, you know, the terrible whatever in the news, people just, they pull these things in. And why do they pull this, like, search for some purpose in it? Because 
we instinctively want to believe that even in the evil things that happen, that there is an overarching somebody who's got some plan for why all of this is happening. And so even, even uh, people that don't believe in God will say things like that. They borrow theistic theology because their soul is wanting instinctively to believe that there's some meaning in the universe and some reason that these things happen. When in reality, if you don't believe in God, you can't say that. If there is no God, if the evolutionary biologist is right, then there is no meaning or purpose in anything. There is no ultimate anything. Chaos happens. Evil happens. It's all that there is. But we as Christians have a different belief, don't we? And that's what Solomon says here. We believe, and Solomon says, indeed it is true, that our lives are in the hands of God. That our, our circumstances, our goods, our, our bads, the, the, the ups, the downs of life, that all of that is in the tender hands of a loving Heavenly Father. And we rest in that, don't we? Knowing that nothing is ever going to happen to me that is outside of the hands of God, which, by the way, these represent the power of God, the purpose of God, the plans of God, are the hands of God. And indeed, it is true that there is a purpose behind everything if we are God's children. Here's Romans 8. He works everything together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we see in this verse a truth that for the Christian, everything, there is a meaning and a purpose behind everything, and all of it is going towards a good as God defines it. But for the unbeliever, they cannot say that, well, we know that there's a meaning and purpose behind it, or everything works together for good. It's only those that are called according to his purpose. In reality, God intends for the unbeliever bad. He intends punishment. He intends judgment. Indeed, hell is the end of the unrighteous and the wicked. And yet we need to believe something is controlling everything that's going on in this world. And that gets at the second phrase here. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And interpreters aren't sure. I'm not sure if it's, it's either God's future love or rejection that it's talking about, or maybe it's my own personal experience of love or hate. I don't know what my future holds in that regard. We're not sure which way that it means. But here's what, here's what he's really saying, is that there is a reason in the things that happen, that this world is not all that there is, that there is a God who is providentially and powerfully working behind all the things that happen. And yet, in spite of that, what do we know? What do we know about the future? We don't know if love or hate awaits us. We, we actually know pretty much nothing about what is actually going to happen in this day, in this week, in this month, right? We don't know. Now, we make plans. We make plans. We have our calendars. Uh, in, in, in a week, we're going to go on that family vacation this summer. And then in July, we're going to do the 4th of July at Grandma's house. And then we're going to, in August, we got this plan. We make our plans, right, as if all these things are certain somehow. And yet, they're not certain, are they? What do we actually know about the future? Nothing. 
He will say in a few verses that we are like fish caught in a net. Okay? Imagine a little fish. He's just doing the fish thing, right? Swimming along, swimming along. It's another day being a fish. When all of a sudden, swoosh, and he's dinner. Just like that. No idea that was going to happen to him, did he? I think that's a good illustration. (laughs) And we see this every week around here. You know, in a church our size, every week we have somebody that is sitting in the service, apparently healthy, apparently, you know, everything's ticking and working right, and then like on Wednesday of this week, they're, they're having open heart surgery, and you're standing next to them in the bed, and they're saying, Pastor, I don't know if I'm waking up here or in eternity. Will you pray for me? Who here this week, right now, maybe sitting right now, that's what's coming for you. We We don't know, and things don't always work out the way that we expect them to work out. And there are tragic things that happen very unexpectedly. I saw in the news this week, this Friday, in fact, just two days ago, the tragic news of Christina Grimmie, the singer, who, uh, 22 years old, she had been a finalist on The Voice, had a little budding singing career in Orlando after the concert, selling some shirts and signing some autographs, and some guy just walked up, and she died Friday. Now, there's a little more to that story to share with you. I have a friend, 30-year 30 30 friendship in my life, who served at a church in New Jersey, ironically named Bethel, that... Christina's mom was the church secretary. And I reached out to him yesterday saying, hey, give me the details on this. And he just shared with me about this wonderful Christian family that Christina grew up in and how she was a believer and the family, they're Christians. And like his wife, he's a pastor in Colorado, his wife and Christina's mom, like they talk on the phone almost every week and just a really wonderful family of faith. And that's what Christina grew up in and was herself a Christian and two days ago, right now, possibly sipping coffee on a Friday morning. Just another day, 22, full of life, incredibly talented. And right now, she's in eternity. I had somebody after first service come up to me and say, did you hear what else happened in Orlando? And I hadn't seen any numbers, but when I left this morning, he said, 50 people I believe is the number now, shot dead by somebody in Orlando last night. All those people, another day in their life, no idea, like the fish, caught in the net, life's over. Life is incredibly fragile, isn't it? We like to think it's solid, everything's cool, I'm going to go on forever, but it doesn't work out that way. Loved ones that we assume are going to be at the dinner table. Again, this Thanksgiving, suddenly there's an empty chair. They're not there. The job that seems so solid, all of a sudden, gone. Now what? Where did that come from? And we say this, I didn't see that coming. But in reality, as human beings, what can we see coming? Nothing, right? Nothing. But the glory here in this text is that our futures 
are not uncertain to God. They're uncertain to us, but they are not uncertain to God. He holds our futures in his hands, within his power and his purpose. Nothing is going to happen to you or me this week that right now God is not fully aware of, that right now is, is fully knowing exactly what lies ahead and all of it within his power and purpose and promise to work everything together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. There's the old song that says it this way, he's got the whole world in his hands. Okay? Indeed, he does. In fact, Jesus took it down to a very personal level. You say, well, yeah, the general big things, you know, like kingdoms rising and falling, that's what he's interested in. No, here's what Jesus said in Luke 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. When the God who holds us in his hands knows the number of hairs on our head, and it's not just the general number, it's like he's numbered them. Oh look, 53 just fell out. <laughs> you can see the incredible detail and clarity that the God of heaven has over the details of your and my life. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God that he cares for us on that level. Nothing is ever going to happen to us that is outside of his tender, loving hands. Second thing he says here, and this, I just have two points today. First is that what appears random to us, controlled by God. Second one is, doesn't matter who you are, you're going to die, okay? You're going to die. He says in verse 2, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, okay? He repeats in verse 3, we all have an event. Every human being has an event. Hmm, I wonder what he's talking about there. What do we all have in common? A future thing that everybody is going to experience. Clearly, he's talking here about death, and he says the righteous die, the unrighteous die. It doesn't matter the moral character of your life, you die, right? It captures all of us. And he, he lists here now five categories of people, kind of two extremes and everybody in between. He says, who is it that dies? The righteous die and the wicked die. The good die and the evil die. The religious die and the unreligious die. The good die and the sinner dies. Those that make oaths to God and fulfill them, they die. And those that would never make an oath to God or fulfill it, they also die. Doesn't matter who you are, everybody dies. Now most of us are okay when certain people die. And what I mean by that, maybe that sounds funny, but... What I mean by that is that we, we can look at, a, at like a wicked person and say, well, that person should die. You know, like the person who goes up and shoots up the nightclub or whatever it is, and then they turn the gun on themselves and they kill themselves. I'm thinking not that many people showing up to that guy's funeral. Why? He, he should die after what he did. When the wicked die, we're like, mm, okay. But when our perce perception of the righteous or the good or the young when they die, it seems to us to be a terrible tragedy. And indeed it is on a human level. 
Pastor Dan told me, as an example of this, Pastor Dan told me about, like, last week at Moody Bible Institute. There's a family he knows super well, and their son, like 22 years old, taking a Bible class at Moody Bible Institute, suddenly had an aneurysm, like, died on the way to the hospital from that classroom at Moody Bible Institute. Now, we look at that, we say, wait a second. Here you have a young man studying the Bible, probably preparing to go into ministry, Why would a guy like that suddenly die? And yet the Ecclesiastes answer is simply this. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. Are you righteous? Doesn't matter. Are you a good person? Doesn't matter. Are you super religious? Doesn't matter. Do you make and fulfill promises to God? Doesn't matter. The same car accident that kills the unrighteous kills the righteous. And the same tornado that kills the sinner kills the saint. And the same cancer that kills the, uh, uh, the, the, the pastor kills the prisoner. No one is exempt. We are all going to die, friends. Every single person here, you are, that's the old Latin phrase, memento mori. Remember, you must die. We're all going to die. It is inescapable. It is life under the sun. It's what it means to be a human being these days, is we all die. Pastor Steve, I thought you said this was something about hope. I'm not hearing anything right now. Look at verse 4. It's one of my favorite verses in Ecclesiastes. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I love that little phrase. A living dog is better than a dead lion. If you were to ask most people, would you rather be a lion or a chihuahua? Okay. Most people would say, I'd I'd rather be a lion on the Serengeti roaming powerfully. But if you insert one small detail, things change. If you say, would you rather be a a chihuahua that's alive or a lion that's dead? Now everybody's wanting to be a chihuahua, right? I would much prefer to be a living chihuahua than a dead, mighty lion. Why? Well... He says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Solomon here describes uh, five qualities of being dead. He says, there is no knowledge, there is no reward, there is no memory of you, there is no human passions. And there is no share, you have no more share with the experience of life, of being alive in this world. It is over. And when it comes to death as a human being, when it's over, it's really over. Like that is it. There is no more. You don't get to come back from the dead. Another example from this week. Ali will never again float like a butterfly or sting like a bee. Never. He will never, ever 
do that again. It is over forever. It is over for Muhammad Ali. Where's the hope, Pastor Steve? Get to it. Again, verse 4. The living have hope. Well, how, how do the living have hope if we're all going to die anyway? Here's how. The living have hope because the living have something that the dead don't have. What do we have? Time. We have time. We are still alive. And that means that we have the opportunity to leverage this asset to get ready for what we know is coming. We don't know when it's coming. That's the, the chaos of it. But we know that it is coming. And because we are alive, we are in a position where we can prepare for it. I have time to change. I have time to live for what matters one second after I die. The dead are already dead. Their lives and their eternities, all that is set. It's done. But we're still alive. We have opportunity. In fact, I titled the, entitled the message, The One Second That Determines Everything. When you really boil it all down, don't you, with life and all the things we do and all our activities and the things you did this week, things I did this week, things I worried about, things that I care about, when you really all boil it down, doesn't everything come down to one second? There is one second that is coming for every single human being, and what happens in that one second determines our entire future eternities. One second. That one second, that last second that we have on earth. Think of it with me a second. This is what's coming for all of us. There's coming a second when, right before I die, that sort of millisecond, I'm breathing still. My heart is pumping still. I have relationships, friendships, family. I have life in this realm. This is the only realm I've ever known, this material world where I have a body and I have a brain and eyes and I speak and life in this world. It's, it's all that we've ever known. But there's coming in a second where we're, we'll be in this one moment in this realm and then there is going to be a millisecond where this realm is gone and I step into the next one. And what is that one going to be like? What awaits me in that place? What's it feel like? What does it look like? What is the experience of the millisecond of death? The Bible has a lot to say about that one second. Hebrews 9:27 man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Matthew 10:28 Jesus says and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So much in the Bible is about that second and everything that follows the eternity that comes after it. And here is a fascinating example of one of the most poignant moments in human history that summarizes what I'm trying to say here. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in between two thieves. 
There was a thief on his right, and there was a thief on his left. And listen to what happens. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now we can stop right there and we say, Hey, he's a Christian. He confessed him. He said, You're the Christ, aren't you? Come on. Say, Oh, that guy, he's, he's under the grace of God. He must be a Christian. Yet you read the rest of the story, no. But there's another thief. And that thief rebukes the first thief, saying this, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Fascinating. Two guys, okay? Two guys, two criminals, two thieves. Both of them are about to die. They know they're about to die. They are out minutes, hours, who knows how long, but they are about to die by crucifixion. And while one was almost dead, he was yet still alive, right? He was still alive. And here's the point. As long as you are alive, there is hope for you. It is not too late. And that thief hanging next to Jesus makes a confession. He confesses, I am a sinner. We are getting what we deserve. He confesses, Jesus is innocent. And then turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, I acknowledge that you are a king. I acknowledge that you have a future and eternity. Now, it's not the sinner's prayer. It's not the Roman's road. But there was in his heart, while he hangs on the cross, about to die, genuine faith and belief in Jesus. And as long as you're alive, there is still time. And time is the key. Time is the key. And even in that last moment, he confesses Jesus as Savior. And the words that Jesus says to him, the most assuring that any person has ever gotten about their future, Jesus himself says to that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And by today, he meant like, in a couple hours, you're going to be with me in a place that Jesus describes as paradise. And guess what happened? Very soon, okay, we know around three o'clock, Jesus died Okay, so here's the thief, and he sees Jesus. You know, it is finished, and he goes limp, and he's dead. We know from the story that the two thieves lived a little bit longer, and so they wanted to get ready for Passover. So the Roman soldiers came, and they, they clubbed their legs. They broke their legs, which when you're dying on a cross, you can no longer push up, and that means you basically suffocate. And these two thieves now, down they go. They can't breathe, and they suffocate. In other words, his second came. That one second for this thief came. Imagine with me, if you would, here. Down you go, down you go. Maybe he looked over to Jesus in that last moment, seeing him dead on the cross, and then he died, and he opened his eyes, and who does he see? But there's Jesus saying, told you so. (laughs) 
And let me give you a tour of what I told you was paradise. Better to be a repentant thief dying in agony on a cross than an unrepentant one. Better to be a thief with faith than a Roman soldier without it. Who would you rather be, that thief on the cross or the Roman soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothing? Who would you rather be, that thief dying on the cross or Caiaphas back in his big house in all of his comfort? Or Herod, the king, in all of his royal comfort? Or Pilate, who had sentenced Jesus, now all comfortable, no pain, everything's great, I'm a ruler, I'm a governor. Who would you rather be, the lion or the chihuahua with faith? And the, the, the answer, friends, I hope you're seeing what I'm getting at, better to be a dying thief on a cross with faith than to have all the comforts of this world and yet you're gonna die and go to hell, right? And that moment is coming for each and every one of us. That second when you pass from this life to the next is coming. And in that moment, better to have faith no matter how non-famous you are, small in this world you are, bad health that you got, people don't like you, whatever your issue is in your life, if you have genuine saving faith with, with Jesus in that second, better to be the chihuahua and go to paradise than to have everything this world offers and to go to hell. And there are many of us here I know in this room who have prepared for that second because we don't know when it's coming. We've prepared like the thief. We have said to Jesus in our hearts, remember me when you come in your kingdom. We have professed with our mouth and in our faith, in our belief, trust that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And we believe that in that second, when I breathe my last, that I will open my eyes and there will be Jesus. And there will be this realm that the Son of God called paradise. And that will be every second of my existence forever. Many of us have done that. We're ready for our second. Others, though, here I know have not. And I want to ask you, are you ready for that second that is coming? It's coming, and once it's here, you can't change it. Your eternity is eternally determined. And there are billions of people who've already died but you're not dead yet. And that means that you have the opportunity yet to believe, to repent of your sins. Like the thief, we're getting what we deserve. To put your personal trust in Jesus dying for your sins. To believe him to be the king who is coming. To believe him to be the son of God and the Savior of the world. You still have time, friend. You still have time.
Those 50 people at the nightclub last night, their time's gone. You still have time. What will you do with your time? Are you ready? You can be by trusting in Christ and becoming his disciple. Better to be an alive, saved by grace dog than a dead lion with no hope. Better to be alive with time than dead with no hope. Better to be alive with opportunity yet for salvation than dead with no hope. Better to be alive with faith in Jesus than dead with no hope. And you have hope, friend, because you are alive. And I urge you to take advantage, to use it wisely, and to get ready for that one second that will determine your forever. Are you ready?